Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm going to begin today's podcast with some rather unpleasant thoughts. Now, what follows are my opinions on a few issues, and only my opinions. So please don't take them as absolute facts, because uh, they only represent things as I see them, and uh, I'm sure that there's a wide range of opinions that differ from mine. Now, as you most likely uh, know already, uh, I've had to remove my podcast number 316 from the net. Uh, didn't have to, but I did it at the request of Dennis McKenna. And uh, at this time, I have no plans to restore it. So if you are one of our fellow saloners who are subscribed to these podcasts via iTunes or some other aggregator, well, uh, you now have what may become a collector's item from the salon. And uh, by the way, if you don't have an automatic subscription that downloads these podcasts as soon as I post them, well, uh, maybe you want to look into signing up for one. You know, uh, they're free through iTunes and the other aggregators, uh, and in case this ever happens again, then you won't miss anything. Now, uh, I really hate to begin this podcast from a negative point of view, uh, particularly because, uh, well, I was raised in one of those working-class families of the 40s and 50s where uh, we just never discussed anything that was considered to be unpleasant. So uh, this isn't easy for me. However, uh, now that I'm so much closer to the end of my life than to the beginning, I've decided that it's time for me to change my stripes a bit and uh, just bring all of this out into the open. After all, uh, the way I see it, we're a family here in the salon, and uh, so let's have a little family meeting, okay? First of all, uh, after putting a significant amount of work into going to Esalen, where Bruce Damer performed what he called a deep dive into the mind of Terrence McKenna, uh, and then going to the trouble of editing the podcast and podcasting his presentation, uh, after all that, uh, a controversy began in the McKenna family which caused Dennis to request that the podcast be removed, along with all of the wonderful comments that our fellow saloners posted in regards to it. And out of respect for Dennis, who is now in an extremely difficult position, uh, I have done so at the cost of uh, receiving a lot of hate mail for doing so. Now what Bruce and I didn't know at the time of uh, this performance and podcast was that Dennis had apparently given McKenna family, uh, including Terence's ex-wife, the final say as to what went into the book he is writing about his brother. And the appearance of some of the texts uh, online, as read by Bruce in his presentation, has uh, evidently caused quite an uproar. Uh, since I in no way want to be the cause of these difficulties, I've permanently removed this podcast and the comments. And for that, I am very sorry, and I apologize to everyone here in the salon, particularly those who posted comments. It was never my intention to cause you or the McKenna family any stress. That said, uh, you should also know that uh, never have any of the children of Terrence nor his ex-wife ever given any form of approval whatsoever to these podcasts here in the salon. And while I've attempted to contact them on several occasions over the years, my emails, uh, well, they never receive an answer, uh, nor have my inquiries uh, sent via mutual friends. So I take that to mean that they simply don't like the fact that I'm playing some of the talks given by Terrence. And while it saddens me to know that I'm not thought well of by them, it, uh, hey, it wasn't me who made Terrence a public figure. He did that himself. 
As I see it, uh, I'm just one of many messengers who have been positively influenced by Terence's lectures, and uh, I feel a sense of obligation to repay him in some way uh, for the insights that he's helped me gain, and I'm doing that by replaying the talks that he freely gave permission for attendees to record as long as they weren't sold for a profit. At least uh, that was my understanding when I attended several of his lectures in person. And to many of us at the time, uh, well, his lectures were sort of our version of a Grateful Dead concert's uh, bootleg tapes, uh, if you know what I mean. So uh, Dennis is now making the final revisions to his book after meeting with the rest of the family. And in a way, this makes me sad for the position that Dennis finds himself in. Uh, Having read parts of an early draft of his book, I found it very well written and extraordinarily helpful in further understanding the complex person of his brother Terence. And I'm sure that the first half of the book, which describes their childhood and the expedition to La Chirera, will uh, really be spectacular reading. However, uh, we're just going to have to wait and see about the remainder of the book, which uh, will now be taking into account the feelings of uh, Terence's children and his ex-wife. And, hey, who can blame Dennis for attempting to keep peace in the family? Uh, I'm sure I probably would have done exactly the same thing. Now, the upside here is that in the past, I've heard from several budding historians who had hoped to write a book about Terence themselves, but who abandoned their projects once Dennis's book was announced. Uh, now, with this new information about crafting Dennis's book so as to uh, spare the family any discomfort, it seems to me to reopen the possibility for other historians to also report as much of the history of the Bard McKenna as they can uncover from other first-hand sources. I do know that there are several people still alive who are also very intimately familiar with some of the more controversial aspects of uh, Terence's life. And their stories should probably be collected before much longer if uh, these first-hand accounts are to be preserved. As for me, uh, please don't write and ask for any help in pointing out who and where these people may be, because uh, I'm now moving on and don't plan on getting any further involved in the history of Terence McKenna. My position is simple, uh, at least to me. (laughs) I consider Terence to have been one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. Maybe not as much in his original thoughts, perhaps, but in the ways and numbers of people who his words touched. It's quite obvious to me that the recordings of his lectures that I and thousands of others are posting on the net each year continue to seed the minds of large numbers of people, both old and young. So it seems to me that his thoughts should be preserved and listened to as fully and widely as possible which means that uh, I'm not going to abandon my own plans for doing what I can to preserve the spoken words of our beloved bard. However, uh, that too seems to have become quite controversial as well. And here's the story on that. As you know, the Internet is packed with thousands of recordings of Terence's lectures. In fact, I recently received a somewhat snotty email from one of our fellow saloners who pointed out that of the tapes that I've played in uh, what I'm now calling the Paul Herbert Collection, well, they've all been online in a variety of places for years. Uh, But then this person went on to say, and I quote, What's the matter with you, Lorenzo? Haven't you ever heard of Google? (laughs) Well, uh, yes, I have heard about Google, and uh, yes, I do know that all of the McKenna talks that I played here in the salon, with one exception, have been all over the net for years now. The exception being the Valley of Novelty series that I played about seven years ago, and I actually attended that workshop myself and have the tapes from that session which were not copyrighted. Everything else, as my rude critic pointed out, has been online for a long time. 
Which now brings me to my plan for playing the Herbert collection in the order in which they were recorded. I still plan on doing exactly that. Uh, however, I will first do that uh, suggested Google search to be sure that I'm not the first or only person to post one of these recordings. That way, uh, the threats of lawsuits that are being made will have to include suing more people than just myself. And uh, now here's the rest of this unpleasant story, since uh, we're a family here. Long ago, I was able to determine that the Dolphin Tapes, uh, the company whose tapes bear a copyright notice from Paul Herbert's company, which was Dolphin, uh, was defunct, out of business, no longer in existence. Which meant to me, at least, that these recordings fell into that black hole called Orphaned Works. And uh, this is a huge problem everywhere, uh, not just with these tapes. You see, uh, there are tens of millions of these so-called orphaned copyright works, and most libraries and other institutions are so freaked out about some long-forgotten person or group reappearing from the mists to, to claim ownership of the work and sue them for bringing it back into existence. As a result, uh, this is a big gray area of the copyright law that, in my opinion, needs to be settled once and for all. And while I certainly don't want to wind up in court, I at least feel obliged to do whatever I can to help clear up this mess. Now, after I began playing the first two tapes in the collection, uh, the management at Esalen informed me that the dolphin rights had been transferred to some non-profit corporation that they also believed held the rights to everything else that was ever recorded at Esalen. And apparently for the past uh, decade or so, they've been negotiating with the people who claim ownership of this material uh, to have it all digitized so that they can sell it in the Esalen store. However, uh, the Esalen people made it very clear to me that they make no claim to ownership of the copyrights themselves. And so I've been doing what uh, due diligence I can with my limited resources, and I discovered that this uh, non-profit corporation no longer seems to be in existence either. As far as I can tell, they haven't kept their corporate charter fees up to date, and the uh, most recent public record that I can find of their tax reports shows that as of 2010, they had zero income, zero expenses, and most importantly, zero assets. Now, perhaps they can go back and pay their fees and correct their tax returns to somehow claim ownership of the copyrights of these tapes. I really don't know. So uh, I'm going to go ahead with my plans to podcast the Paul Herbert collection until uh, such time as the opponents of releasing this material lawyer up and sue me. Should that happen, uh, then I've got two choices. I can attempt to engage the good folks at the Creative Commons to defend me and, uh, and uh, hopefully put to rest this ridiculous situation of orphaned copyrights and put it to rest once and for all. Or, uh, if I can't get uh, free legal help, I'll just close the salon. However, uh, I do feel obliged to say, and this is pretty petty, I guess, but it was the Esalen Institute who is ultimately responsible for the destruction of the McKenna Library and Archives, and uh, now they uh, are telling me I should probably hold off until they settle all these uh, copyright issues with this, uh, uh, what I think is a defunct nonprofit corporation. Uh, but, hey, this is just my uh, whining, I guess. So anyhow, I am very sorry for beginning this podcast on such a heavy note. But I've decided to break with my old family tradition of sweeping unpleasantness under the rug and uh, bring you into a full view of what's going on around here. To be honest, uh, all of this controversy for a few days uh, brought me to the verge of very seriously thinking about closing the doors here in the salon. And... Uh, 
just having heard my podcasting friend the Dope Fiend saying that he's starting to burn out as well and will be going to a monthly format next year, well, it actually got me to thinking that maybe I should just uh, spend the last few good years I have left uh, working on my writing and uh, jettison all of the work associated with these podcasts. But then yesterday I logged into my PayPal account, which during the summer months gets very little action. So it's usually during the summer that I have to dig into my savings a bit to pay for our server and online presence. But what a surprise I had. There were uh, either direct donations or purchases of my books that came in and were enough to cover this month's expenses and uh, get us into the first week or so of next month. And uh, suddenly a wave of love washed over me and I realized how much the salon means, uh, not just to me, but to you and the rest of our fellow saloners as well. And if I hadn't already taken so much of your time right now, I would read some of the kind messages that these wonderful people sent. But I suspect that you probably already share many of their sentiments. So uh, thank you all ever so much, and as soon as I get this podcast posted, I'll be sending you a personal note of thanks. But you have not only sponsored the next 30 days of podcasts, well, you've made my heart sing and finally got me out of the deep funk that all of this controversy was causing me. So uh, let's get on with the show, <laughs> at least until the next shoe falls, huh? <laughs> anyway, uh, today I'm going to play for you tape number five from the Paul Herbert collection. But wait, you say, what about three and four? Well, even though it was my original intention to replay the talks that have already appeared here in the salon, I found that I wanted to hear something new. And uh, so you will find the third tape in the collection in my podcast number 270, and the fourth tape in the collection in my podcast number 261, should you want to re-listen yourself in chronological order. The talk that I'm going to play today, uh, in case you think I don't know how to use Google, is not only available on YouTube, uh, where over 700 people have listened to it, but if you enter MP3, followed by Vonich Manuscript, in quotes, followed by Terence McKenna, in quotes, you'll get over 2,600 hits. So, uh, at least if we get sued, there should be someone in that crowd with deep pockets who can afford a lawyer. For my part, I've already gone through my life savings, and I don't own a house, and hell, I don't even own a cell phone. So, uh, should the lawyers get involved, uh, other than forcing all 2,600 of us to remove this recording, uh, I can save you some time and point you elsewhere in your search for cash. Now, uh, about today's talk. One of the uh, first things that you will notice if you've read the Wikipedia entry about the Vonage manuscript is that some of Terence's facts, uh, such as the price that uh, Rudolph II allegedly paid for the manuscript, uh, well, they don't match with what the net now says. And I'm not saying that uh, one or the other is wrong because, well, Terence actually had one of the world's most comprehensive alchemical libraries at one time, uh, the library that was destroyed in the fire. Uh, so who knows what his sources were. But at one point, he said that Frederick the Elector died in the siege of Prague. However, uh, if you want to believe Wikipedia, uh, Frederick actually escaped to The Hague with his wife. Uh, however, my amateur status leads me to believe that uh, it's actually me and Wikipedia who's mixed up here. But uh, I'm sure that'll be straightened out in the comments section for this podcast. Or uh, maybe I should just Google it some more, huh? <laughs> anyway, let's now give a listen to Terence McKenna. Not in the guise of a psychedelic warrior, but as the egg-headed professor, a role that he seemed to be born for. 
Today I'm going to be discussing the Vonich Manuscript, which is certainly one of the most interesting and has been called the most mysterious manuscript in the world. I will describe the physical manuscript, place it in a historical context, and then discuss my own ideas about the people who may have been uh, its authors. First of all, the manuscript itself is written in a language of which no other example is known to exist. It is a alphabetic script, but of an alphabet variously reckoned to have from 19 to 28 letters, none of which bearing any relationship to any uh, English or European letter system. The manuscript is small, 7 by 10 inches, but thick, nearly 170 pages, closely written in a free-running hand, copiously illustrated with bizarre line drawings that have been watercolored, drawings of plants, drawings of little naked ladies appearing to take showers in a strange system of plumbing, which has been variously identified as organs of the body or a primitive set of fountains, and astrological drawings, or what have been interpreted as astrological drawings. But more about all this later. First of all, the known facts of the manuscript are uh, few. They are that it appears in 1586 at the court of Rudolf II of Bavaria, who was one of the most eccentric uh, European monarchs of that or any other period. This is the same Frederick who collected dwarfs, who collected, uh, had a regiment of giants in his army. He was surrounded by astrologers. He was fascinated by games and codes and music. He was uh, typical of the occult-oriented Protestant intellectual of this uh, period. Anyway, to his court and among his courtiers came an unknown person who sold this manuscript to the king for 300 gold ducats, which translated into modern monetary units is about $14,000, which is an astonishing amount of money to have been paid uh, for a manuscript at that time, and immediately signals that the emperor must have uh, been highly impressed by this object if he was willing to put out that kind of money for it. <clears throat> Accompanying the manuscript is a letter which states that uh, it is a manuscript of the Englishman Roger Bacon, who flourished in the uh, 13th century and who uh, was a noted pre-Copernican astronomer. Now, at that time in Prague, which was where the court of, uh, of the emperor was being held, uh, the reputation of Roger Bacon was at a great height the court was a hotbed of alchemy, and among all these alchemists, the reputation of the English monk Roger Bacon was held very high. This is because 
two years previously, the sale of the Vonage manuscript to the emperor being uh, dated to 1586. Two years previously, John Dee, the great English navigator, astrologer, uh, magician, intelligence agent, occultist. Wait, I still am back on Frederick. You mean what was his relationship Could you to all this? Him a little bit more. You say it was typical. Well, he was, he epitomized the liberated uh, Northern European prince who was a patron of alchemy, gave money to all these printing presses that were printing all this alchemical literature. Uh, the Rosicrucian conspiracy, about which I will say more later, was fomenting at this very period right under the surface. And... Uh, Frederick patronized astrologers, magicians, alchemists. The reason John Dee uh, had such a long stay at Frederick's court was because his companion, Edward Kelly, claimed to be able to perform the alchemical opus, and the king more or less placed them under house arrest and asked them, you know, to do this for him as a favor, since he had patronized them very heavily. And uh, when they were unable to, uh, Dee was able to talk his way out of it. Kelly had been the one who had made the major claims, and he was kept there and actually died in an effort to escape. He fell when the, she the shale roofing on a high parapet of this castle slid way underneath his feet one moonlit night when he was trying to sneak out of the castle. Uh, but I anticipate my story because I think John Dee and Edward Kelly are probably, uh, if they were not the, un I certainly think they were the people who sold the emperor the Vonich manuscript because of circumstantial evidence uh, surrounding their interest in subjects similar to those being covered by the manuscript. And, uh, Frederick, Frederick is... The same one? Is that the Winter Summer Queen? King and Queen? Is that Frederick? No, that this we're talking about Rudolf II. Oh. He was succeeded oh. by this guy, Frederick the Elector Palatine of Bohemia, who was also in this mold of a patron of Protestant uh, alchemical aspirations in Central Europe. But anyway, the Vonich manuscript... Uh, was accompanied by this letter stating that it was a, a Bacon manuscript, and the best astrologers and cryptographers in this court looked at it and could make nothing out of it. And uh, it, and along with a great deal of other weird collections and material that Rudolf had gathered together from all over the world, was uh, passed to various people at his death. And this book, because it contained botanical illustrations, passed to his botanist, who was a man named Marsisi. And uh, he had it for 20 years. Then it passed to an unnamed party who had it for 20 years. And by this time, we're up to the 1620s. And then it passed to Athanasius Kircher, 
who was one of the great polymaths of the mid-17th uh, century. He was a Catholic intellectual, an alchemist, a person who experimented with artificial languages. And before he obtained the Vonich manuscript, we know of letters of his to various people asking about it. And in fact, he was sent small portions of it reproduced that he struggled over. But once he actually had the manuscript in his possession, his diaries are silent about it. And he says nothing, even though five years after he acquired it, he published a book called A Universal Study of Artificial Languages that nowhere mentions the Vonich manuscript. Then well, some maybe, maybe well, he called it something else. But there's no, there's no reference of any sort to anything that he possessed that was like that. That's right. And he became a, decided to become a Jesuit in about 1660 and uh, had to give away all of his worldly goods. So he gave uh, his library to this Jesuit seminary south of Rome. And in among his books was the Vonich Manuscript. And it sat on a shelf in the seminary from 1660, 1760, 1860, 1960, 280 years till Alfred Vonich, a New York book dealer, bought the entire library on a trip to Europe in 1912. And when he got it all back to New York and sorted through it, among all this easily catalogued late Renaissance Italian theological material, was this peculiar book, more than peculiar, totally anomalous book. And uh, it's very strange because uh, the store of images, uh, even as late as the period when we first hear of the Vonich manuscript in the 1580s, the store of images in the European mind was very limited. For instance, uh, in speaking of the biological sections of the Vonich manuscript, here you get 120 drawings of plants. And yet there were only 10 or 15 herbals in circulation among the educated people of Europe of that time. And none of the Vonich images can be directly traced to any of these previously uh, printed or circulated manuscripts. Likewise, the script itself, it has no antecedents and it spawned no imitators. Uh, Codes from the early 16th century onward were, in Europe, were all derived from a book called the Stenographica of Johannes Trithemius, Bishop of Sponheim, who was an alchemist of Sponheim, who was... Uh, uh, wrote on the encipherment of secret messages, and he had th about three methods. And uh, no military or alchemical or religious or political code was composed by any other means throughout a period which lasted well into the 17th century. Yet the Vonich manuscript does not appear to have any... Uh, any relationship to the Trithemian codes. Uh, Trithemian codes? The codes derivative of Johannes Trithemius, Bishop of Sponheim. Yes. 
and uh, is that a? I mean, is there something? Do people research the Trithymian codes? Oh, the literature is voluminous on the Trithymian codes. <laughs> sure, uh, there's a book by Walker called "Spiritual and Demonic Magic from Facino to Campanella" that covers all of this very well, or Francis Yates' book uh, "The Rosicrucian Enlightenment," although they it's neither of them. Yet? Not quite yet. Okay. First of all, <laughs> let's see. Uh, more about D and why I think that D is the obvious candidate for uh, being the author or being the purveyor, if not the author, of uh, the Vonich manuscript. D. Uh, first of all, uh, Trithemius' book, the Stenographica, didn't circulate in as a printed book until uh, the 1580s, but it circulated in manuscript form from about 1530 onward. And when Dee visited the continent as a fairly young man, he records in his diary that he spent three days hand-copying the relevant chapters of a manuscript copy of the Stenographica that he was shown in Paris. So from very early in his intellectual life, he was in possession of the Trithemian code-making machinery. The next important event in his life for my argument, and one of the most puzzling events in the whole history of science generally, is the afternoon in July of 1582 when at Mortlake in his study, John Dee was distracted by a brilliant light out Outside his window and stepped outside to receive from a creature he described as the angel Gabriel a uh, polished lens of Lancasterian coal, which he described in his diary from thenceforward as the shoe stone. <laughs> That's S-A-T-W. The shoe stone. And uh, he was able, by meditating on this stone, to induce uh, visions and dialogues with spirits. However, uh, this ability seemed to fade in the months after he received the stone until a strange personage came into his life in the spring of uh, 1584, and this was uh, Edward Kelly. Now, Kelly was a much younger man than Dee, and Dee was married to a much younger woman, Anne Dee. Uh, and Kelly was uh, of the uh, rascal class, and he, in fact, in one account is described as being earless, having had his ears removed for some uh, petty crime in the provinces. Anyway, he arrived at Dee's uh, place in Mortlake, pop-eyed and breathless, with a wild story about how he had fallen asleep in a ramsacked tomb in a monastery in Wales, and when he had awakened beneath him in the tomb had been a vial of red powder, which was the transformative elixir, and a book in an undecipherable language, um, which he called the diary, uh, sorry, the Gospel of St. Dunstable and said that he had been told around in the village that it was in ciphered Welch. Now, 
We actually hear no more in anybody's diaries or letters of the Gospel of St. Dunstable. However, <laughs> Arthur D., the son of John D., writing some 30 years later and reminiscing about his father, said that from the time he met Kelly, he spent a great deal of time uh, trying to unravel a book called Covered All Over with Hieroglyphics. <laughs> And uh, perhaps this is the diary or the gospel of St. Dunstable, and perhaps it is, in fact, the Vonich manuscript, and that these two things are the same thing. In any case, uh, Kelly's entree to D was the undecipherable manuscript and the alchemical potion. And he quickly, uh, from his conversations with D, uh, determined the story about the showstone, and they set up a seance situation, and Kelly proved himself to be a very adept scryer of the stone. From the very first instance, he could describe vast theatrical oh, undertakings uh, and it. speak all the parts the of the characters. The oh, the showstone is in the British Museum. You can see it. There it sits. They still have it. Anyway, um, so then begins a period in Dee's diaries, which have been were published in 1658 by Marie Casabon as a true and faithful relation, uh, a series of diary entries that span the next ten years, dozens, hundreds of spirit conversations and the delivering unto Dee and Kelly of an angelologic language called Enochian, which was composed of non-English uh, letters, but which computer analysis has recently shown has a curious grammatical relationship to English. But over 4,000 words are known in Enochian, and they were transmitted by the ghostly apparitions which Kelly channeled to Dee. And Dee, and some of the messages were uh, theological in nature, many were political and uh, came to them as they traveled about Europe, including visiting the court of Rudolf II of Bavaria, our man who was sold the Vonich manuscript. And they were the people who were responsible for telling everyone what a great alchemist Roger Bacon, the English monk, had been. They laid the public relations groundwork for turning this manuscript at a high premium, I maintain. In any case, uh, the several groups that have studied the Vonich manuscript have not looked at the amounts of encrypted material in John Dee's diaries, of which there's over 92 pages of strings of numbers and letters, which if it were found to be encoded in the same way that the Vonich material is encoded, um, that would definitely solve the problem of the authorship of the manuscript. The manuscript, uh, which would have had to have been written in the 13th century, if it were by Roger Bacon, is definitely shows all the physical signs of being a 16th century manuscript. I estimate it was done sometime around 1540. And uh, D, this means Kelly perhaps obtained it somewhere, Otherwise, it would have had to have been done later, as late as the early 1580s, if, if 
D actually wrote it, then then it should be possible to determine this because such large amounts of his encrypted, though still undeciphered, material is uh, on record. and perhaps now would be the moment to talk about the Rosicrucians and show how they uh, work into all this. Dee died an old and broken-hearted man in the under the reign of James the First in 1608, many years after the events of the sale of the Vonage manuscript occurred. Why was he broken-hearted? Well, he had been the court astronomer of Elizabeth and the friend of Sir Philip Sidney and the most educated man in England. When James came to power, James had a total horror of the whole magical side of the Elizabethan court, and he just dismissed this guy as a crank. He didn't want astrologers around him. He thought it was all creepy. He was a rationalist. His anti-Catholicism extended to a mistrust of the entire occult tradition generally. However, uh, early in his flowering period, Dee had written a strange book called the Hieroglyphic Mona, the Monus Hieroglyphicum, which was 36 quasi-geometrical theorems, which actually hinted at some kind of mystical doctrine. And it was just, it's this utterly obscure book. Uh, in the early 1580s, it circulated in manuscript and was printed a few years later. In 1604 and again in 1608, the primary Rosicrucian documents were anonymously circulated in Europe. They were called the Fama and the Confessio, and they came out of nowhere. They were like broadsheets distributed in the middle of the night from street corners. And How can they do that? It was, they said, we are a secret society, and who we are, you may not know, but if you're uh, hip enough, you'll be contacted and asked to join. And people like Robert Flood, who was essentially the heir of the D tradition in, in English occultism and science, basically put out advertisements saying, if I ain't good enough, nobody's good enough. Why haven't you people contacted me? <laughs> and the fact of the matter is that... Uh, the Rosicrucians, meaning the authors of the Fama and the Confessio, never contacted anybody. And their claim was basically fraudulent. It was that uh, the tomb of Christian Rosencrantz, who had lived in the 14th century, again, it's like this harking back to Roger Bacon, but instead harking back to a mythical personage two centuries previously, that the tomb of Christian Rosencrantz, a, a great knight who had gone on the last crusade, had been discovered, and that inside there were all these alchemical books and with a quasi-political overtone, definitely favoring the bohemian uh, court of Frederick the Elector Palatine, and uh, that all this should be disseminated as gospel. It was a kind of alchemical Protestant revival. But curiously, these texts, the Fama and the Confessio, had many doctrinal similarities to Dee's hieroglyphic monad, so that it appears that Dee either was used as the model for the Rosicrucian conspiracy by its authors, 
persons unnamed, but I suspect the Czech alchemist Johann Valentin Andrei as probably being the person behind this, because Andrei and Michael Meyer were people who uh, uh, definitely were old enough to have been involved in Dee's earlier visits and have then just been at their intellectual... at the peak of their intellectual powers when the uh, foment that you mentioned of the Winter Kingdom and the bringing of Frederick Elector and his wife to Prague as uh, the king and queen this episode occurred. And in fact, I'll now relate the Vonich manuscript back to all of that. Previously, I mentioned that when Rudolf king, his court fell into disarray, the Vonich manuscript passed to his botanist. Well, what was happening was that the old emperor was dying at a great age and mad as a damn hatter, no question about it. <laughs> Meanwhile, to the west, in Bohemia, the Frederick Elector, who is everything a Protestant alchemical prince could hope to be, young, brilliant, scheming, totally in charge of his lords, he weds Elizabeth, the daughter of James I of England. And he takes the king's decision to give him his daughter's hand in marriage as... Uh, tacit approval for his plan to establish an alchemical kingdom, a Protestant alchemical kingdom in Central Europe. Actually, uh, James, being the conservative that he was, had a far more uh, Machiavellian purpose in wedding his daughter to Frederick the Elector, because he also had it in his mind to wed one of his sons to a Spanish Catholic uh, Habsburg princess and was uh, trying to steer a neutral course when he realized that Frederick and Elizabeth had gone off to, uh, to Bohemia to their court to be with Michael Meyer and Gerhard Dorn and Johann Andrei and all these guys uh, and to uh, patronize these alchemical presses and astrology and all this stuff. He was much alarmed. But by that time, it was too late to call it back, and he realized that Frederick the Elector was a wild card. When Rudolf finally did die, the uh, princes of the Northern League gathered and chose his success successor by secret ballot. Frederick won. And so in the winter, in the f late fall of 1619, he and Elizabeth transferred their court to Prague and ruled for one winter uh, until May of 1620. Uh, the Mayflower was landing in America in the same year, but uh, it had nothing to do with any of this. Uh, then the Habsburgs by that time had mounted an army and uh, were able to crush this thing. In a sense, it can be seen as the opening shot of the Thirty year Years' War, although the Thirty year well, it was the opening shot of the Thirty Years' War. One of the young French soldiers in this Habsburg army laying siege to the city was the 19-year-old René Descartes, who would grow up to be the great 
proponent of modern French materialism. Michael Meyer, one of the last great synthesizers of the medieval alchemical vision, died in the siege of the city. And Frederick was killed, and uh, Elizabeth fled. She lived in The Hague for many years. And so, see, in that confusion, the botanist of Rudolf uh, held in his house somewhere in the suburbs of Prague the Vonich manuscript, and the Thirty Years' War comes, modern times overtake Europe, and this thing drifts further and further from its roots. But my reconstruction of what must have happened is uh, that uh, in this period when Dee and Kelly were regaling Rudolf with tales of the alchemical prowess of Roger Bacon, that they they ponied up this manuscript. Either they wrote it at that time, or they had it with them. If they had it with them, it's a far more interesting story, because then perhaps they are not its authors. If they are its authors, then it merely reveals the grammatical deep structure of the deranged mind of an Elizabethan magician, and this would explain to some degree why it was outside the ken of the CIA. But if they didn't write it, if they only had it in their possession, then the mystery continues, because where did they get it, and what was it? It is true that Dee was under the patronage of the Earl of Northumberland, who, uh, when Henry VIII broke with Rome, all of the English monasteries were sacked by the... uh, lords who stuck with the king, and uh, the Earl of Northumberland sacked monasteries that had large repositories of Bacon material, and Dee's library at Mortlake was known to have uh, 53 Baconian manuscripts, of which only 41 have survived into modern times. There are 41? Baconian manuscripts. Where are they? Oh, they're at the Bodleian Museum, uh, Library at Oxford and the British Museum. They have all this D material. Have you seen it? No, no. Oh, well, it would be fun to see it. The most interesting thing is this huge book called A True and Faithful Relation, which is the day-by-day seances with these spirits as Dee and Kelly move all over Europe. It's in that that it's recorded. Oh, and this is a piece of circumstantial evidence I almost left out, that in the very month that the emperor paid the 300 gold ducats for the manuscript, uh, Dee records in his diary that they received 320 gold ducats from a mysterious source. Now, it is true that another angle on Dee's personality, and some biographers have taken the position that he didn't believe in magic at all, that he only posed as a screwball, and that actually he was uh, an intelligence agent for the British crown. He was visiting all these courts as an astrologer and a necromancer and an alchemist and actually encrypting very succinct military and strategic and diplomatic information into these letters which he was sending home. And because he could cast the finest horoscope in Europe, he had an entree into all these people's scenes. And uh, and the truth lies somewhere in between. He was doing all of this 
is. He was an agent for the British Crown, but he was also, you know, the finest flower of the uh, of the medieval mind. He was used by Shakespeare as the model for Prospero in The Tempest, and uh, is the model for Doctor Faustus in Christopher Marlowe's version of that classic spellbinder. <laughs> what do you think about the uh, Bacon Shakespeare controversy? Does that fit into that at all? Well, it just shows, you know, how tenuous our grip is on what was going on in this time. I mean, besides whether Bacon wrote Shakespeare, then you have the problem of... Uh, things like the Vonich manuscript, Bacon visited Dean. We're now talking about uh, Francis Bacon, who was, who claimed, actually, Roger Bacon uh, as a... As one uh, of his? As one of his, he yes. He did? Oh, yes. I didn't hear that. Oh, yes. That's great. Queen Elizabeth and Philip Sidney and uh, Francis Bacon visited John Dee at Mortlake one afternoon to see his library because he had more books than uh, anyone in England. And uh, he is a very, very peculiar person. One of the most interesting things about the Vonich manuscript uh, is uh, the pe people whose careers have floundered, foundered on uh, decipherments, where people have come forward with very bold claims. Uh, this guy, William Romaine Newbery. Newbold uh, in the 1920s, who was a classic scholar, a medievalist, and by all accounts a very brilliant man, he uh, announced that he had a complete decipherment of the Vonich manuscript and um, said that what it involved was uh, shorthand strokes, tiny strokes that were components of each letter in the Vonich script, and that by staring through a magnifying loop, you could magnify these characters and see that encoded into each one were the distorted remains of a Roman shorthand system that had been lost for 600 years. And he produced uh, astonishing decipherments uh, in which... Um, he definitely thought that it was a Roger Bacon manuscript. He decoded passages that dealt with student uprisings at Oxford at Christmas time, 1292, when uh, the riot between the Black Friars and the something or other. Just, you know, long, long decipherments. The problem with all of this was that no one else could... Uh, extract the same sense using Professor Newbold's method. His method involved so many choices from pools of letters at every given point along the line that you could demonstrate that hundreds of messages could be extracted. And Professor Newbold died a broken man. He was disgraced. His career shattered. He had gone too far. The Vonich manuscript had claimed its first victim. <laughs> the next person to advance a decipherment of the Vonich manuscript was uh, Robert S. Brumbaugh, also of Yale University.
And uh, his decipherment is in some ways almost as puzzling as the encryption. He would have us believe that the Vonage manuscript says things like, liquid Syrian matter, liquid matter, plus Syrian Sicilian, plus Syrian salt, European Swedish Sicilian, plus Syrian, plus Russian Asian Sicilian, salt, liquid, liquid, Asian Italian Syrian salt, liquid Sicilian Italian, plus Sicilian, plus salt, etc., etc. Um... Robert S. Brumbaugh of Yale. However, when his method was examined by other people attempting to reproduce the same plain text, they got uh, nowhere, and it, he, uh, it can't be taken seriously. How embarrassing. Another effort at decipherment, which is minor, perhaps, in comparison to the other two, but which provides an interesting anecdote, was a man named Strong who was at San Diego, had uh, claimed decipherment of certain of the labels of the illustrations of the Vonich manuscript. And when Paul Lee uh, formed a working group uh, to look into the Vonich manuscript, Dr. Strong was one of the people they wanted to interview. And my friend Ralph Abraham, who's a mathematician at Santa Cruz, uh, had photostats of certain folios of the Vonich manuscript, and he sent very detailed letters to Dr. Strong with these folios as enclosures and questions like, it is alleged that on folio 9b you translated a certain word as uterus. Here is a photostat of folio 9b. Please circle the word you translated, and this kind of thing. And... Uh, Dr. Strong's secretary wrote Ralph back and said that he was very old, he was in his 90s, and he didn't feel he could compose a letter to address all these questions, but that if Ralph would come to San Diego, he would satisfy him completely. Uh, so that was a Thursday. Ralph made an got a reservation to fly down on uh, the following Monday, and Sunday night, the uh, secretary called and said that Dr. Strong had died of a heart attack that evening. So, the Vonich manuscript uh, has bedeviled people's careers, and uh, people who have claimed to understand it have uh, died with the secret untransmitted to the rest of us. The, the intelligence community inside the United States government has spent a fair bit of time looking into it simply because it is so unusual to come upon a, such a large amount of code from such an early period and have it resist decipherment. I mean, it is just unheard of that a 16th century manuscript could not be deciphered by modern methods. The most interesting thing, in fact, published on the Vonage manuscript is uh, a United States government technical information office publication called The Vonage Manuscript, An Elegant Enigma by Mary de Imperio. And Mary de Imperio must be a Renaissance 
PhD student somewhere who was hired by the government to basically collate everything known about the Vonich manuscript. And uh, some interesting things are known. Eventually, I think, perhaps it will yield, although I'm not sure. For instance, computer analysis of the handwriting in it uh, shows that two hands are involved. It was written by two people. Does this mean it was written by Dee and Kelly? Is this uh, the hands that we should look for? Can we then, by comparing it to the handwriting of Dee and or Kelly, get a further feeling for, uh, for their relationship to it? Uh, Where, how do you get a hold of one of these? You have to write to the Office of Technical Information Services in Springfield, Virginia, and ask for this particular document whose number I'll have to hunt down. And does it cost? Oh, yes. It costs like five or six dollars. But it's a wealth of information on the whole context in which, I mean, it discusses all kinds of magical alphabets and uh, early systems for encoding and hiding information. I think that what fascinated me about the Vonich manuscript is above and beyond the historical puzzle, above and beyond how interesting it would be to know what it actually says, since someone went to such great effort to hide what it says, is just the idea of an unreadable book is a kind of Borgesian concept that is attractive. There must be somewhere an unreadable book, and perhaps this is it. And it's almost, uh, I mean, if my analysis of it as being a product of Dee and Kelly has seemed too facile or facile, let me assure you that it is, and that there, not all the facts are covered by that theory. So much of Dee's writing is known that I think if he had been the author, it would be possible to find that out. Perhaps it is possible to find that out, and we're just premature in our wish for a resolution of it. But the unreadable book the idea that the, the world is information and the way by which we have cognizance of the world is by ordering all the information we come upon through relation to information that we already have accumulated. Patterns. Right. And an unreadable book in a non-English script with no dictionary attached is very puzzling because we, we are like uh, linguistic oysters. We secrete around it. We insist it into our metaphysic, but we don't know what it says, which always carries with it the possibility that uh, it says something which would unhinge our conceptions of things or that its real message is its unsayability. It simply is... Uh, it, points to the otherness of the nature of information. It's what's called then a limit text, as Finnegan's Wake is a limit text, or... Uh, or uh, what does that term come from? It's a term of French structuralist uh, criticism. Searching the search for limit text. Well, certainly, the Vonich manuscript is the limit text of Western occultism. No one can read it. It is truly an occult book. <laughs> <laughs>
It's like a literalizing of uh, the the mythical book in H.P. Lovecraft's mm -hmm. work, which is the Necronomicon, the writings of the mad Arab al-Hazrad. And in fact, Colin Wilson, in his book, The Philosopher's Stone, connects the Vonage manuscript to the Necronomicon. The Shoe Stone, maybe, too? Perhaps the shoe stone. Well, the Philosopher's Stone was the shoe stone for D, for sure. Right, right. It's very interesting, this business of, uh, of uh, the angelic language in Nakian, because, as I say, 4,000 words were delivered through the shoe stone to D. In the 1950s, there was a famous UFO case where a woman who claimed she was in contact with UFOs taught a colonel in the CIA how to be in contact with the same group of saucers. And he was demonstrating this ability for a group of his superiors in a room in the Pentagon. And he asked for a demonstration. He was communicating with them through automatic writing. And they said, go to the window and look out. And they all went to the window and looked out. And there was a brilliant golden disk of light cruising past the Pentagon. And uh, they went berserk, uh, called the nearby Air Force Base to see what was on the scopes. The radar had just gone out in this sector, etc., etc. But what was, to tie it in with my point, <laughs> these messages uh, that this guy was getting on this Ouija board were signed AFFA, AFA, which any scholar of Enochian can tell you is the Enochian word for nothingness, friends. <laughs> <laughs> Jaw-dropper. So, uh, <clears throat> it's very interesting. Blake spoke with angels. He was the flower of English poetry at a certain point in time. Dee spoke with angels. He was the flower of English science and, uh, and mechanics at a certain period. And uh, perhaps the Vonich manuscript uh, is... Uh, actually a manuscript that is not encrypted at all, but is simply uh, a book in a non-human language, and therefore there is no Rosetta Stone to it. It is just utterly uh, beyond the pale, as they say in Ireland. Well, I think they should analyze the inks. That's one way. I really think that's a very important thing to do. Even though if it was written in the 1500s, and that would say, but there would also be a way to locate its its uh, origin. That's and, right. I mean, there's all sorts of approaches. In the in the uh, summation in this book by De Imperio, where she suggests things that can be done, the first thing she suggests, as being totally obvious, is the physical book should be analyzed because this has never been done. This would settle once and for all at, at least the century of its origin. And, you know, a number of things could be done. The libraries of the world should be searched for other examples of Vonich script. I mean, after all, are we really sure that there's no other extant example of this uh, strange writing? Uh, computer analysis. This has been part of the approach of the Santa Cruz group is, first of all, settling on a standard alphabet for Vonich and then cataloging every character and the number of times it occurs and in right. what combinations with other characters. And the graphics of it as well. Just the 
patterns that it forms a different if they did a, a fully uh, computer graphics on it I bet that that would give a three dimensional yes well none of the illustrations have ever been satisfactorily interpreted like what are called the astrological illustrations are only nominally that they could be anything they just seem to have stars and circles in them but otherwise they're not particularly relatable to the sky the so-called pharmaceutical section which is all these little canisters and things and these strange little naked women bathing in these uh, in all this plumbing which is called the pharmaceutical or the anatomical section uh, you know could be anything could be an obscure form of central German hydrotherapy or, uh, you know, actually the doodlings of a deranged imagination. <laughs> when you only have one of something, uh, it, it gets quite uh, gets quite dicey placing it in the correct context in cultural history. Especially uh, since there was a lot of secrecy in this period, a lot of people running around faking manuscripts in other people's names, using secret cover languages, uh, communicating in secret codes, plotting secret societies. I mean, this was really the breakup like of the medieval mind, just like today. All sorts of medieval mentalities. Yes, well, this hope to establish an, an alchemical political union in Central Europe was in the context of what followed the 30 years in modern times can just be seen as one of those places where the river of history chose not to run. It was uh, Pick up a the path not taken. But had things turned out differently, had the King of England been behind it wholeheartedly, had... Uh, certain things been different, it might have all uh, unraveled somewhat differently. So, what do you want to do about it? About the Vonich manuscript? Yeah. Oh, I would like to think about it. it as an object of thought. I think it's very interesting. It's like thinking about your DNA. One thing I uh, have thought to do about it is uh, there are now what's called psychic archaeologists which, when all else fails, you bring in these people, and by various means, esoteric and exoteric, they attempt to uh, divine, it. divine what story resides in an object. Since the Vonich manuscript is at the Beneke Rare Book Room at Yale, I'm sure any serious uh, scholar would be allowed to look at it and spend time with it. Uh, I've never seen it. I would like to see it. Uh, the book which Robert Brumbaugh edited called The Most Mysterious Manuscript, which is now out of date in that his conclusions are, cannot be taken seriously. Nevertheless, it, uh, it re reproduces a number of the folios from the manuscript. And uh, when you see them, just the pure weirdness of it all is conveyed quite readily. I mean, it is unearthly. It does not fit in the context of late medieval alchemical manuscripts or late medieval any other kind of manuscripts. Does it compare other writings in there? It doesn't, but De Imperio's book does. Uh -huh. She has many magical alphabets, many different forms of shorthand and specialized note-keeping scripts that were current in Europe throughout the Middle Ages, and uh, none of them 
look particularly like Vonage script. Ralph Abraham made the suggestion that Vonage script had some relation to early Brahmanic number systems. He thought perhaps it was a string of numbers that would then have to be decoded from that and then further unencrypted to get sense out of. Um, one thing that might be said about it is perhaps modern people simply overrate the sophistication of our code-breaking machinery. Perhaps there are simple ways of encoding material that simply have not occurred to the CIA. And so uh, when the Vonich text is finally broken, it will be trivial the way in which it was encrypted, trivial but unexpected in some way. For instance, Ralph made the suggestion to me that uh, grids where you have a grid which has holes in it when laid over a page shows you the parts of the text which are to be dealt with and all the rest of it is noise. If the grid changes from page to page and is completely irrational in the way it changes, then no computer program imaginable could separate the plain text from the noise because it isn't a recursive formula. It's an ever-changing variable that could be just whim, the whim of how you made the grids. And this would preclude, I think, any machine-oriented effort mm -hmm. to decipher it. It would mean that it didn't want to be deciphered. It would mean that the author decided to do it that way, and, and because no one could have, at that time, deciphered it either. That's right. It would not be written oh, this time. grid method is known long enough that this may be the key. So that may mean that somewhere there either exist these grids or there exist the instructions for building them. Mm -hmm. And then out of that you could extract a portion of Vonich text which would quickly yield to modern methods of decipherment because it is the only part of the message which is really sensed. This is a standard uh, method of hiding a message is to embed it in great amounts of garbled material, hours of garbled well, material. That's what alchemy is. Yes, then the, really it would have appealed to the alchemical imagination of Dee or Kelly or any of their educated occult contemporaries to use this kind of method. So it's very, uh, it's very interesting. What would you say the difference between alchemist and shaman is? Well, they have different spheres into which they project themselves. They have different models of the universe. The medieval alchemist uh, had a, uh, a discontinuous and fleeting, but nevertheless somehow ontologically founded conception of an inside and an outside. He knew that there, his ontology was naive, but he accepted the existence of an exterior world on some terms. Then it was to be manipulated through the alchemical process. Shaman actually translate into another dimension. They are true trans-ecstatics. And uh, in that sense, it probably uh, probably represents uh, a higher resolution of that intent. But Merciliad has traced uh, back alchemists into smithing, mm -hmm. 
into early metallurgy and, the, and metalworking, which was always thought to be a magical task. And it runs together then with alchemy. Alchemy and shamanism are united in the figure of the primitive blacksmith because he is both proto-chemist and, uh, and shaman. So at that point in time, it's fused, and that's why there is so much stress on metal in primitive shamanism, on hanging metal off of your body, on smelting metal. It was like magic to turn metal red-hot and to change it into weapons and figures and that sort of thing. So the Bonage manuscript would be really by an alchemist. Well, we don't know what it says. We only know the traditions in which we find it embedded. We assume it's by an alchemist. It but I could mean, anybody be... that would do that sort of a thing at that time would be labeled alchemist. Yes, it comes out of an alchemical mentality. It's very mysterious. It's quite uh, an enigma. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. It's very mysterious. It's quite an enigma. So says the Bard McKenna. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but I just love a good mystery story. And I thought that it was uh, interesting there near the end of this conversation where Terence explained how he saw the difference between an alchemist and a shaman. Actually, I'd never even thought about that question before, and I think that Terence made a good stab at distinguishing those two tracks. But since I've already done more than my share of talking here today, I'm going to leave the rest of my commentary about this talk for interactions with you and our other fellow saloners in the comment section of the program notes for this podcast, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. However, uh, to close on a really upbeat and positive note, I want to let you know about the Planque Norte lectures that are going to return to the playa at Burning Man this year. Next week, I'll give you some more details, but just to whet your appetite, here are some of the speakers who have confirmed spots on the schedule this year. And they are Troy Dayton, Dr. Nautilie, Annie Oak, Allison and Alex Gray, John Gilmore, Bruce Damer, Rick Doblin, and Paul Stamets. And uh, if all goes well, I'll be playing recordings of these talks here in the salon later this year. And as I said, uh, in my next podcast, I'll have more details about this year's Palenque Norte Lectures at Burning Man, so that if you plan on attending, you'll be able to know ahead of time when and where these talks will be held. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>